Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And you're the co-host, Dean Detloff. Dean, how's Lent? How's it going? Where, where are you at in this whole thing? Yeah, it's been quite the Lent already. I just finished a 24-hour fast today um, with a bunch of other students across Canada who were doing a big fast for uh, to raise awareness and build some solidarity with people in the global south. And it was great. It was a good time. I think we all learned a lot about ourselves and others, I hope. But man, I did like eating a big poutine at the end of it. So <laughs> now I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's cool. Um, I did my big Episcopalian Lenten situation, and it was great. Um, Talked to people about justice and um, protesting and organizing. It was a good time. Nice. Episcopalians, they love it. They love that kind of stuff. (laughs) They do. You know, uh, the other thing I did is I did do uh, a fast from social media. And at first, I was just going to do that and, like, just eat anyway and be like, whatever. Um, But I did decide to do both. And I got to say, I think uh, at the end of the day, not checking my Twitter was actually a lot harder than I thought it would be, which uh, I was embarrassed by. But now I'm happy to know that about myself and I'm going to do my best not to be so, so attached. So happy to be getting some Lenten lessons already. (laughs) That's great. Well, in your absence, I was posting even more. So (laughs) I'm picking up the pace. There's a vacuum and I need to get in there. Yeah, the Christian influencer space. Uh, You got (laughs) to when somebody uh, creates an opening, you really got to take it. That's true. That's true. You got to rise to the top to sell your $300 deconstruction series. Um, all right, <laughs> folks. All right. Well, as listeners of the pod will know, um, we're doing a Lenten series or we're going to just do a few episodes on Lent. It's really what it comes down to. There's no reason to be too podcasty about it. <laughs> um, we're doing a bunch of episodes about Lent and talking through the big themes of Lent, just like we did for Advent a few months ago. You know, we got uh, we got all kinds of great themes like repentance and thinking about death and fasting and temptation so some real um some real light topics all the exciting stuff yeah one of the big narratives of the lenten season that everyone knows about i'm sure uh revolves around a piece of the gospel story where where jesus goes out into the desert and he fasts for 40 days and is tempted by the devil um i think that i mean i don't know church people and non-church people like probably know about this story it's in it's it's in the cultural milieu people know about this one i think for the most part in case you've never heard about it in your entire life though I will tell you this right now at the top of the episode in this bit of the gospel, Jesus goes out into the desert and he faces three temptations from the devil. The three temptations are one to make rocks into bread two to worship Satan. And then Jesus will have all of the political power in the entire world and three to throw himself off the top of the temple in Jerusalem and then let the angels just kind of catch him down there at the bottom. And that's cool. And um, each of them, Jesus says, no, no, thank you. I don't want that. Um, I'm not going to do that kind of thing is what Jesus says. (laughs) <laughs> that's uh that's uh the magnificast uh uh translation of the bible right there uh no yeah, thank you yeah Satan, you, eugene Jesus peterson says. had his had the message uh ours is just going to be a lot of ums and uhs split between uh, <laughs> jesus talking to the devil that's right that's what it is so anyways there's a lot going on in these biblical stories that we can kind of pick apart lots of exegetical insights i'm sure and um dean and i are not bible scholars but i think we uh do know enough about christianity and uh and the gospels to kind of pick apart some of the themes that are uh, present in the big story here about resisting temptation. Um, I think the big theme that kind of sticks out to me at the very top here, and I think the one that people latch onto pretty quickly around this particular story is um, about the rejection of political power. Um, and 
whether or not you you interpret that as a rejection right out or something else is a, is a question that we're going to get into in a minute. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at this uh, bit of the Bible here, this bit of the gospel, and we're going to talk about temptation as a political idea, as we do on this podcast, and the ways that Christians uh, can think about political power and maybe have thought about it poorly in, in the past. <laughs> uh, so, Dean, will you, do, will you do the gospel reading for us today on this great Sunday morning? Yeah, I'll be the lector for today. <clears throat> Here you have it. The temptation of Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Pretty spooky ending. The until an opportune time thing, uh, man, a lot of people talked about that throughout, I don't know, the history of people exegeting scripture. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, uh, it's important to note some people think that uh, the devil came back to tempt Jesus again at some point. So that's interesting, but not the whole point of uh, of our episode here. Okay, so in this bit of scripture, which um, you may or may not be familiar with, you get the picture, right? Uh, Jesus is out in the desert. He's doing his thing out there. He's with the Essenes or he's by himself. I don't know exactly the context. I'm sure somebody else does, but not me. And... Um, he is fasting and he's like praying and I don't know, considering the big, the big questions of the world. Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it up? Jesus thought probably a burrito so um, hot that even he couldn't eat it as Homer Simpson once put it. <laughs> that's right. I'm, I'm sure um, both of those thoughts crossed Jesus' mind out in the desert. Uh, but then Satan comes on the scene and he gives them all these weird temptations. Uh, make the rocks and the bread. Do you want all these kingdoms? Uh, do you want to throw yourself off a building and have angels catch you? I get it. Um, some pretty tempting ideas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, they're pretty interesting, though, because they all do have to do with a type of political power, and they all have um, some obvious problems with them, right? They're temptations because Satan is offering them, not God, right? That's the tempting part. Uh, Satan is giving Jesus, like, a you know, a hack, <laughs> a, uh, a speed run to political power by just kind of, like, offering it up to him. And uh, that's a that's kind of the interesting part about it, right? And that's why Jesus has to reject it because it's kind of coming from Satan. But, anyways, all that to say, Christians have taken these um, this particular passage and really thought a lot of things about it. Um, you know, should should everyone just say no to political power, or you know, do we have some kind of more nuanced take? Um, I gotta tell you, Dean, a lot of Christians have some wacky ideas, particularly Christian anarchists around this. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, for sure. I have heard this a lot in my own time as a Christian anarchist. It makes a lot of sense. And I think there's even something to it in a certain way. 
the idea that Jesus is rejecting worldly power, and there's something compelling about that and interesting about it. And it does fit with a certain story that you get throughout the Bible, right? Uh, the Hebrew Bible is really suspicious of kings, as we've talked about on the show a bunch, um, most famously in a passage like First Samuel, where they're, the Israelites are like, we want a king so bad, and God says, absolutely, you do not want that. And in fact, uh, when you get a king, inevitably, you're going to come crawling back to me and say, please deliver us from this really bad king. And of course they do, right? So there's that really interesting thread that does appear throughout the Bible. And so to kind of read Jesus's uh, uh, saying no to the devil here fits, I think, in that kind of story in an interesting way. But there are some even more interesting nuances around that particular story that we could talk about in a little bit. But I think it's good to sort of pull out or parse out the the anarchist reading of it, both because, like I said, it is genuinely interesting, but also I think it helps us think through the limitations of at least a certain kind of Christian anarchism there as well and how it kind of um, reads that particular story. But I like it a lot because seeing politics as a temptation is such a prevalent idea within Christianity in general. And it's not just the anarchists. Like, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to make this about right. just bash, bashing uh Christian anarchists, who I think are generally also good people and interesting folks. But, you know, you get it a lot in a more kind of troubling way in certain Christians who want to be apolitical or who style themselves as radical centrists, right? People who don't really want to take a side or um, they want to see themselves as above the fray. And they'll often also point to Jesus's uh, resistance of the devil here as an excuse to say, well, I'm just resisting the temptation of the devil to be political, right? by refusing to choose a side or refusing to be political altogether, uh, which all too often masks that they have chosen a certain politics, but it's just not clear to them or they're not really interested in making that explicit. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's great to zero in on that particular temptation. The other two are also interesting. We could talk about them later as well. You know, like uh, the famous quote that one does not live by bread alone that Jesus has uh, here that I've often heard among evangelicals as kind of a, you know, a weird way of like downplaying people's material needs, and sure. like telling people that's why you have to have spirituality or whatever. Um, and uh, the third temptation of Jesus not throwing himself off the top of the building. Um, I've also often also heard some weird readings from evangelicals around that of like, well, it's not that Jesus, uh, you know, couldn't do that or like just didn't want to or something, but it's really just sort of uh, giving the devil a big uh, middle finger at the end because like sure. yeah maybe he would do it some other time but not for the devil right so there's lots of weird ways that christians deal with these three temptations but maybe as we'll see there are some cool stuff or cool ways of reading this especially from like liberation theology that i think parse the story out in some more interesting ways totally yeah i mean in my experience at least um it seems like everyone agrees that there's something to be said here about political power <laughs> mm-hmm. but what specifically we're supposed to do with this or what the moral of the story i think kind of remains open or undecided or actually pretty hotly contested between different uh, interpreters of this right um i think that you're right though to call out the the radical centrist uh brian zahn types or whatever in in this instance uh even um f- farm uh, in a minute in just a moment, I'm going to get to you dunking on Jacques Ellul, uh, a person I don't like very much. But I got to tell you, someone who I like even less than Jacques Ellul, I think, are uh, radical centrists who think that, uh, you know, rejecting political power to be uh, a, a neither uh, neither side sort of po- political person is even better. Yuck. Got to say, that's even worse. Um, okay. 
Well, let's keep that in mind as we move forward. But here is um, a, a, a small meditation on this uh, this piece of the gospel from Jacques Ellul. Um, the show, uh, this shows like prime foil to everything we ever do. <laughs> Jacques Ellul is a very interesting thinker. I think is a way is a very kind way to put it. Um, he writes a lot about technology. He writes a lot about um, politics and pacifism. And at the end of the day, Jacques Ellul is like a like a very interesting and kind of radical inheritor of Anabaptism, but also in a bad way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, he has a book that we've talked about on the show, I don't know, a hundred times called Anarchy and Christianity, a book that I think is, has some kind of special place in the hearts of Dean and I, but one that we were like always trying to sort of grapple with because it's actually pretty bizarre. It's a, um, it's a natural problem. We can just be honest about that. Maybe. Yeah. Jack totally. Lula is like the, the theological dad that we had to defeat in order to become the Christian Marxists that we are today. That's right. That's right. Well, um, it it's not only that, though. It is just a really bonkers book, though, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give the book its due. Um, okay. Uh, so Jacques Ellul has this to say about um, this particular passage uh, about the temptation of Christ. He refuses the offer of power because the devil demands that he should fall down before him and worship him. This is the sole point when he says that you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve only him. We may thus say that among Jesus' immediate followers and in the first Christian generation political authorities, what we call the state, belonged to the devil, and those who held power received it from him. We have to remember this when we study the trial of Jesus. So Jacques Ellul here is saying, yes, um, what Satan is saying about having sort of like uh, power over kingdoms and states is true. And that we should just really, <laughs> we should just really ride that out. We should just really reject that. Like, like you were saying a minute ago, Dean. There's like a through line within uh, the Bible, I think, about the rejection of a type of political power, or like a very wariness towards a type of political power. And I think it kind of comes out here in like a really strong way. Um, that 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 puts the the ball of state power firmly in the court of the devil, <laughs> specifically, mm-hmm. uh, and it it gets kind of complicated so in in Jacques Ellul's larger work this means a rejection of all power this is like what he thinks that Christianity is a religion that is necessarily going to reject power um, as a means of getting things done Um, this leads Jacques Ellul to a whole lot of different um, conclusions about uh, you know church polity and and all kinds of things and like what it means to live like a Christian life for sure um, he, I think, is kind of a, an, an advocate for a really like particular agrarian lifestyle uh, that that ends up being actually kind of strange in practice. But that's bound up with this sort of philosophy of technology too. So there's there's a lot going on. All that say that there's this approach uh, to the text that I think is um, has a certain seductive uh, role to it in saying that all all power, state state power, political power, all of it. It belongs to the devil in one way or the other, so we should reject it. I think is a really like, there's something really radical about that way of thinking. It's something that really appealed to me at a certain time in my life. But I think fundamentally, it's kind of like wrongheaded and leads you to I don't know, basically apoliticism. Um, but I don't know, Dean. What what's your hot take about Jacques Ellul here? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think what you said is basically how I feel about it. Uh, there's maybe another angle or wrinkle. So you mentioned Elul has this kind of interesting relationship to Anabaptists, I think is true. And Anabaptists see a lot of their own selves in Elul. 
uh, with good reason. But there's also this really interesting Calvinist strand in Jacques He's super invested in Karl Barth in particular, and he thought himself as a kind of reformed Calvinist Christian, which there's a whole tradition of kind of French Calvinism that is very interesting, and Alul is part of it. But what that means is for Alul, just like for a theologian like Karl Barth, uh, the real key to everything is like a kind of extreme like obedience to God above and to the exclusion of everything else. Um, so much so that it actually makes it really difficult to talk about things that are not like explicitly theological. <laughs> like yeah. everything gets read through theological categories. So it becomes the only discourse that you think has really any kind of meaning in the end. And you see that in Alul. And what's really wild is with someone like Alul, who spends a lot of time commenting on things that aren't theology, uh, you can kind of detect that in so much of his other work. Like, basically, Alul, just like Karl Barth, is obsessed with idolatry more than anything else. That's kind of the specter that's always, like, haunting his work. And the state is definitely that for Elul. So it's you have to choose either God or the state, right? Or for Elul, in other cases, you have to choose either God or uh, the automobile or God or a technocratic society or God or, you know, literally anything else. And I think there's kind of a way of talking about that that is interesting. Liberation theolo- theologians also have their own way of talking about idolatry. But uh, in Elul, it becomes almost like What's a good metaphor? It's like um, it it becomes a way of kind of screening out a lot of other things (laughs) that are really important or like, you know, it's a bit of a way of uh, skirting around the more difficult questions around some issues because everything gets chalked up to like idolatry. So uh, the state is just the devils and there's nothing else to say about it. Right. Um, I think that creates some real problems. Yeah, bringing up idolatry is actually really important for this conversation because that is kind of the hinge that uh, Jacques Ellul swings on, um, I guess. Like, um, there, there's a okay. Let me let me say this. Um, I think it's to overdetermine idolatry <laughs> gets you into some hot water, like you said, right? It, it screens at everything else. It makes it really hard to talk about things that are not theological. And I'll give an example in a second. Um, but there is like a real seductive element to that type of rhetoric, especially if you're an evangelical, because it's just like, um, you know, you want to be the most sort of ideologically pure when it comes to your religion. And you want to like make sure that you're like the most correct about things. So the rhetoric there makes you like um, have like a real edge to cut against people with. And that feels good, I think, mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> but that's why it's dangerous, too, I think. Right. Because you're uh, you're saying that you're going to resist power. But at the same time, you're finding a way to actually use that rhetoric to wield power against mm-hmm. other people, uh, which is uh, the most evangelical thing there is. But anyways, um, when uh, Dean, a minute ago, you said that it does make a thing. It, it makes it hard to talk about, um, you know, actual like material sort of like nuts and bolts kind of political things because like everything has to be a kind of a theological discussion. So in Anarchy and Christianity, the the point that we always kind of come back to on the show to like do do one final last uh, big dunk on is uh, Jacques Ellul has this like part where he is kind of painting a picture of like what he wants his life to look like or what he thinks life should look like. And it's, like, one where he, like, lives on a hill and he, like, raises cows and he doesn't have to get his cows vaccinated because uh, <laughs> if you made him, that would be, like, state power and, like, coercion and, like, everything else that kind of goes along with it. The devil, obviously. And, like, he's just, like, and that should just not be – I'm not okay with that. I want to live on the hill. Let me and my cows live up here by ourselves and, like, do our own thing. And, like, I think that's, like, <laughs> you know, kind of, like, the the funny end point of Jacques Lul and, like, that 
way of thinking is that, um, you know, when you're most concerned about idolatry, when like when rejecting all political power becomes like the primary um, locus of your thoughts about power, um, I don't know, like that that's kind of what you become, right? A person who is just like, let me live alone on a hill. Don't bother me. And I'm I'm not going to do anything, even if you want me to, because that would be you exercising political power. I mean, I don't like that. Yeah, I think in a weird way, I don't know if this thought will work, but it just occurred to me. Um, it almost feels like with a little what you get is kind of stopping at Jesus in the desert and you don't yeah. really get out. You know, like <laughs> the whole point is that Jesus leaves the desert and actually goes back home and then hangs out with all his friends, <laughs> like all the people that he was <laughs> That's around. That's one word for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes on to have this kind of prophetic ministry. Right. But um, I think you know, there's a sense that like the desert is this moment of uh, spiritual transformation for Jesus and it sets him up for this political ministry. Um, but for a little, it's almost like the desert is the the kind of grounding feature or grounding moment. And I think there's probably a way of saying that that is true and interesting. The desert is, is this kind of formative experience for Jesus. But like, um, you know, if you, if you decide on like a really extremely specific hardline lesson from the desert, like all state power is bad, then you're just going to end up kind of, uh, I don't know, reading the rest of Christianity through that particular lens. And I think a little does do that, fortunately. Totally. And and what that gets you, though, is like a really frustrating type of Christianity, one that's always wrong, that has nothing <laughs> rede- redeeming in it. Right. Because it's like, OK, uh, you you got to the, the point, the point of, of the gospel, you know, if you kind of read it with this type of hermeneutic is that you. Uh, all state power is bad. You got to reject it across the board and that's it. And then like all of Christianity, you also have to say it was also bad, right? 313 when Constantine converts, that's bad. Mm-hmm. And okay, maybe it was, but like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's bad. And then like nothing good ever happens again. Cause it's all the result of state power. It's all the result of the co-optation of Christianity by state power. And, um, I don't know at the end of the day, that does not ring true to me or my experience. Um, but I guess Jacques Alul is welcome to it. Yeah, well, it stops Alul also from having more interesting things to say about his own contemporaries. You know, like I was just reading earlier this year uh, a book called Jesus and Marx by Alul. Um, I don't really know why, (laughs) but decided to, to pick it up and read it. And I guess still, like I said, working out those Oedipal problems. And, uh, It's basically his engagement with liberation theology, but also the Christian Marxist dialogue more generally. And I think it's a like it's a mature work for Elul's thought, like it's written later in his life, but it's very politically immature in terms of how it understands the world. And uh, the thing that I kept on thinking about is in Elul's way of thinking, there's really no way of understanding something like the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. Uh, yeah. In any meaningful category, like the idea that, you know, Ernesto Cardinal and other priests or Christians could kind of uh, wield state power against the Contras, for example, throughout the 80s. Like that is a position that you just can't really make sense of if you have this uh, really limiting um, theological way of, of filtering everything out. Uh, or you could even, you know, you could think of lots of other examples like um, Lula in Brazil, um, you know, not a theologian, but supported by a lot of liberation theology movements and so on. Uh, all that kind of stuff just kind of can't come on Elul's register. So, I, I, you know, it's just to say, like, there has to be some other way of talking, because at the end of the day, it is actually better that the Sandinistas overthrew Somoza than 
having people, I don't know, suffer through Somoza while imagining what it would be like to like make a weird, you know, cell of like <laughs> Christian anarchism in Nicaragua or something. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that, well, I mean, okay. Just, just thinking of that passage from Alul, I mean, it's not very critical. It's not really asking any questions. It's just saying like, look, Jesus said no to state power that the devil was offering him. And that's all I need to hear. <laughs> Before we turn away from Alul, maybe one thing that I'll say in Alul's favor is I do still prefer Alul to the kind of, um, you know, liberal centrist, apolitical reading of this sort of passage, because at the end of the day, Elul is actually concerned about real problems, real temptations that I think are temptations like state power. Even if you think that there's a kind of nuanced take about it, it is always a temptation. This is something you get sure. in, in every tradition of the left, including Marxism, right? Like uh, Marx has a place for the state. Um, the Marxist tradition has obviously a very important place for the state. But in the end, the state is not the end goal. It's a, you know, it is a a frustrating tool that has to be wielded by the proletariat uh, until you can get rid of it. So I think it's it's good, nevertheless, that Alul is trying to parse out some of the temptations that we do find in things like state power or political action. And, and there's there's a, a place for that conversation on the left. But I think like, you know, what I what I don't think there's a place for is the kind of taking away from. Uh, from this story that Jesus rejected uh, political power as being from the devil. And therefore, you know, you yeah. should like, I don't know, be kind of like a social dropout or like a political dropout or see yourself as, like I said earlier, sort of above the fray of the Democrats and Republicans at it again. And right. you're kind of outside <laughs> because you're so holy. I think that is something that I don't have any time for. So a little is like, worth engaging and criticizing, I think, um, because there's something of substance there and something that is like, you know, near to something meaningful, but just not where I want to land, as opposed to those kind of middle of the road stuff, which are just, um, I don't know, there's nothing there to critique because it's such a, a boring way of understanding <laughs> this kind of passage. Totally. Let me also use what you just said there as a springboard to say one more thing. Okay. <laughs> before we move on. <laughs> and that is, I don't think that Jacques Ellul's thoughts in Anarchy and Christianity are particularly representative of Christian anarchists. Yeah, he's not yeah. the ones I know in real life. Totally. Like, I know a handful of people who I think might identify that way. And they are far savvier and smarter than Jacques Ellul. So I just want to put that out there. That, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that uh, I think that the people I know who are Christian anarchists actually probably have a lot more to say about this. And they're not <laughs> quite so silly. Um I mean, we're all silly to a certain extent, but like uh, what I'm trying to say here is that uh, Christian anarchism, I think, don't let don't let Jacques Ellul <laughs> spoil it for you. He's yeah. just a particularly useful uh, ding dong that we like to uh, <laughs> trot out here. Yeah, that's right. Well, OK, let's turn, though, to uh, the experts. And by that, I mean, uh, as always, whenever we talk about the Bible on this show, the gospel and Solon Um if you have never heard about it. Um, welcome to the show for the first time, I guess. Uh, it is uh, a book that is a record of conversations about the Bible that happened in an island archipelago called Salantaname in Nicaragua uh, right before the revolution in that country. And the community was led by this radical priest named Ernesto Cardinal. And so what you really get in the book is Cardinal kind of like, you know, uh, listening to the to the community and um, offering his own two cents now and then. And so it's this really kind of amazing uh, engagement with the Bible from a, uh, a position of struggle from people who are living under dictatorship, living in a very poor rural community, 
and trying to figure out what the Bible means for them. And as you could probably guess, there is a great few pages on this uh, moment when Jesus is in the, the desert. So I thought maybe we could talk through those three temptations because they actually have interesting things, interesting political ways of reading all three rather than just the middle yeah. one. Um, so maybe we'll start at the top, which is uh, the first temptation to uh, turn the stone into bread. Uh, so I'll read first what uh, a couple of these people say. Maybe we can um, pause. So first of all, a guy named Francisco says the devil wanted him to perform a senseless, useless miracle that wouldn't do anybody any good. So that's the first reason that Jesus might reject it. Uh, and then a person named Olivia goes on to say, or that would do good only for Jesus himself. Later, he would perform the miracle of giving bread to a whole crowd, but that was different. Here, we are dealing with a selfish miracle. And Gustavo picks up on it and says, and I see that more than anything else, the temptation consisted in reducing his messianism to a purely material level, a developmentalist messianism. Of course, bread is important, but we can't stop there. Revolution doesn't just mean giving food and clothing and comforts to people. It goes beyond that. And this was a temptation that Jesus had as the Messiah, and he rejected it. Uh, there's one more quote that I'll read in a minute, but I'll just pause there because there's already kind of like a lot of wild thoughts on the table here. And I, I really like uh, all the different angles that the community brings um, to the passages all the time. So, yeah, I don't know, Matt, what do you think kind of pulling out the Salentonami conversation? Yeah, first of all, I love this book so much. I think that it's probably the most interesting and most profound book I've read about the Bible ever. Yeah. And uh, what I like about it is that it's just a bunch of people kind of throwing out some ideas that they have. And no one's trying. No one. Okay. If you ever go to like uh, a Bible study at like, a, I don't know, a mainline church or something, people will always ask like big sort of academic questions because they maybe just know enough to be kind of dangerous in that sort of area. <laughs> like, you know, what do you think this word means in Greek or what is the context of this? And like, fine, there's a place for that for sure. Ask those questions. But I love the I love the gospel in autonomy because it's just like. Maybe the devil wanted to perform a senseless miracle. Yeah. <laughs> that would be stupid. Don't you think that? Don't you think that could probably be the case? It's just people like just thinking about the Bible in a really critical way and kind of trying to like see how it activates in their own life and like what it means. And they're just like, what if that was the case? Mm -hmm. It's great. It's a great practice. I'm here for it. I love this book. Okay. I'll let's say um, I like it. It's fantastic. Read it with your friends, I guess. The Bible, that is. I mean, the gospel and soul to me too, but both. <laughs> um, anyways... That being said, I think that all of these ideas are really cool. I like the one from Olivia particularly, right? Um, that uh, uh, Jesus doesn't want to turn the rocks into bread because the the th that's that's something he's going to do later. <laughs> that's something that he's going to. It's a miracle he'll perform for an entire crowd, um, and it's not here. It's not something that he's going to do here in the desert for himself because that would be like a selfish and sort of self serving miracle, right? That would be using his. Uh, is Jesus superpowers for like a, a silly reason? I like I think that kind of that uh, that logic is interesting though because it 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 asks the question well like if Jesus has the ability to <laughs> I, it's so hard to even talk about this without thinking that he has a superpower mm -hmm. but that's okay we'll just go with that um, if Jesus has the ability to turn rocks into bread right then there there must be a a moment where that uh, the use of that ability is like okay and one where there's not right with great power comes great responsibility i i think the bible says that one too in there somewhere mm -hmm. um but like the the idea here is that the 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 bread the uh making bread appear for people in 
I don't know, circumstances. It's something for the people. It's something for a crowd. It's something for a group of people and not for like one person to have or something. There, there's something kind of profound about that. Yeah. And then Jesus isn't like a magician who is just doing tricks yeah. or something. Right. But if Jesus is going to do a miracle, it's going to be for some kind of social good, uh, which is a neat hermeneutic that you see throughout the gospel in Salentaname. Um, I really like what Gustavo says as well, that it's not just a purely material kind of messianism that Jesus has, which is kind of a, a wild twist. Um, you know, usually the gospel in Salentaname is trying to pull out the material kind of uh, glosses on a, a, a biblical story. But I think what Gustavo has going on here is to say that it's not just about uh, the material. There's this kind of, um, well, he calls it a, a revolutionary piece to it, right? That it goes beyond just food and clothing and comforts, that there's something kind of deeper involved in it. And uh, I, I love that. I love when the gospel in Salentaname tries to sort of go in a more spiritual direction as well, because yeah. there's always this this sense that, like, the revolution in Nicaragua is going to be something, you know, like certainly that has to do with making sure everyone has bread. And also they have like a really meaningful, you know, depth of life. I think that is like a cool commitment that you see in this text a lot. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's not just about the material conditions, but it's also about the other piece, right? The creation of new people um, or the, you know, that's one way of saying it. Maybe that's like the, that's the Che Guevara way of saying it, but it's also yeah. about like the empowerment of a group of people or like recognizing that, um, you know, the people that society would rather just kind of cast off the poor and like the, I don't know, working class people, um, they have an actual role to play, that they're not just like useless or something. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something really important about that, right? There's a spiritual recognition that they are people that actually have some kind of value in the world. Um, so I don't know. It's it's such an interesting thing, though, because, you know, you have that uh, you have that turn of phrase that, you know, you don't you don't live on bread alone. And we use that to sort of like... Um, uh, recognize the importance of spirituality or something, but there's something I think even like I don't know. I think that's recognize saying that like you don't live on bread alone means that you need to recognize like the spiritual in, like reflective aspect of it or something. I think that even does it an injustice, right? That there's um, there's something deeper going on here um, about uh, about what spiritual could actually mean in the world, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be like an introspective thing. It could mean like a reconceptualization of yourself within society or something. Yeah, I mean, even in the biblical context, right, the first temptation happens after the, the fast. So Jesus has fasted 40 days, and it's, it's the devil saying to Jesus, like, this is, you know, aren't you so hungry? You're famished. That's, the Bible says that he's famished. And so the very first temptation is to uh, meet that bodily need right away. And Jesus refuses it, I think, in this recognition, too, that there is this, uh, you know, there's a deeper meaning to the fast than just um, refusing to eat or something like that. Uh, and you get that also in, this is the other part I wanted to pull out here, uh, a person named Marcelino says, the word of God gives us bread, too, because in a community, some might have bread and others might not. And if there's love, we share it and we all eat. If there isn't any love, even though there's a lot of food, people will be hungry because a few people will hoard the food. And it's this recognition that, uh, you know, the, the messianic revolution of Jesus does kind of aim toward, as you were saying, Matt, this kind of new humanity piece. It's not just about making sure that you eat, but making sure that you kind of develop this uh, sort of spiritual disposition toward the world that would make sure that if you have bread, you're going to share it. You're going to find a way to share it. So it's fun to kind of watch them figure out how to put these things together, I think. And uh, yeah, better than 
Chuckle. Sure. All right. So then there's the second temptation. This is the one that always is very interesting to me that I think I've had a lot of thoughts about in my life. And um, after reading this, I recognize how wrong I am. But anyway, it's okay. <laughs> so the second temptation is this. The, the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you, I will give the glory and all this authority for it has been given over to me. And I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it'll be all yours. And Jesus said, uh, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Okay, so that's the second temptation. Satan is saying, I'll give you all the power and authority in the world if you just bow down to me, Satan says. And um, there's a lot of reasons that's deeply bad. And you can see why there's a temptation there. Um, <laughs> in my in my brain, I've always thought, well, what if Jesus just said yes and then was very good? <laughs> <laughs> that's the good. That's like the Marxist-Lenist way of thinking about this particular situation is like, well, of course, you got to just seize – you got to seize political power, but then just turn the state against capital, and then you'll be okay. So Jesus should, just should do that. But um, that's obviously a bonkers way of thinking when <laughs> you really get down to it. <laughs> so um, let's see what the people uh, from Sultanama have to say. Uh, the, the first person that we pulled out here is Loriano, um, one of my faves. He's, uh, he's in here all the time. And Loriano says that uh, he, the devil, is like a politician. Because that's what political campaigns are like. A man comes into town and makes all kinds of promises so people will vote for him. And people do vote for him. And afterwards, he doesn't give them shit. And then another person says, the devil wanted Jesus to adore him so he could be God. And then another says, he was offering him an imperialist messianism. Um, These are very cool. I think these are great. Again, someone's taking their own sort of personal experience, just kind of reading it into the Bible here and kind of like making it come alive. And I like that a lot. Um, I like what Loriano says, though, right? Like, the, the devil is like a politician in the sense that he's going to make all kinds of promises, right? Of course, Jesus, you can have all of the political authority here. And then as soon as Jesus does it, uh, just like a politician, the devil will be like, oh, sorry, I can't. Uh, I got, uh, you know, I got to get this through Congress first or something, <laughs> right? It's pretty good. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, they go on to talk about it in some interesting ways as well. Um, so uh, just to read these through. Cardinal says, uh, I said, why do you suppose the devil says that he has received all this? And a guy named William says, he grabbed it all. It's a dictatorship. He has the power, but a power that's not legitimate. It's stolen. Imperialism and capitalism and all oppression belong to him. It's up to us to take from the devil what he has grabbed for himself, the riches of the earth. The temptation of Jesus is also a picture of what's happening now. Those in power offer things to the people so that they'll serve them. Uh, I love that. Uh, you know, you got to seize from the devil what the devil has taken. That's great. I think that's pretty cool, yeah. actually. That's that's better than the uh, the the dumb just like take it and then and then you'll be a good ruler, actually, right? right. And instead, you end up being sort of a, a messianic imperialist. Instead, you have to fight a war of liberation against the devil, right? So, like, instead of uh, taking it as a gift from the devil or something, you know, you yeah. you seize it instead. Uh, that's the people's like, protracted war against Satan. <laughs> yeah, people's protracted war against Satan for sure. I think that's also the political possibility that that Alul has trouble imagining, right? It's uh, either um, either the devil gives you a gift that is actually a, a curse, um, or you know you refuse it. But I think there's that third possibility of like, or you know you recognize that the devil has taken something that you should have, which isn't to say that you should baptize all governments or state forms or anything, but. Um, as William says, it's it's the riches of the earth that are captured through these kind of, uh, you know, worldly powers. And so you want to uh, take what's been taken away. Yeah, that's right. Well, OK, here's here's one more and then we can say some more even about it. Uh, this is from Francisco again. 
Francisco says, and from what we see in this passage, all governments are of the devil. Okay, hold up, Francisco. Christ couldn't set up a government like that. He came to make a revolution against all these powers, and there will have to come a day when there isn't any government. Then the revolution will be a complete success. So in this one, there's a little bit of dialectical thinking. There's, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, of course, uh, all, all governments are bad. Uh, some maybe aren't, are, are less bad. But uh, after the revolution, there won't be any government, and that will be even better. Francisco, I'm not sure we're on the same page there completely, but uh, <laughs> but that's great. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're here. I'm into it because, I mean, you can read it in uh, the same way that you know Marx talks about the. Um, sure, the the state will wither away eventually. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and and only then will the revolution be complete, right? Um, or like uh, like Fidel Castro says to Fray Beto in Fidel and Religion. Um, you know, uh, as it stands, uh, they're trying to do their best to um, honor the kind of communist formula of from each according to their ability to each according to their need. But so far, they've only got the ability part. Right. And he says, like, Christianity is further because it demands the to each according to their need part. And that's really when the revolution will matter and the state won't really have to be part of that. Right. So I think seeing that uh, <laughs> all, all governmental power sort of has this like diabolical kind of moment in it is at least a, a deep sort of um, heartbeat in, again, all traditions of the left. But uh, yeah, it's to say also, though, the revolution won't be a complete success until you've, you know, gotten beyond those kind of forms. But nevertheless, you can you can have partial successes. <laughs> sure, sure. OK. I was also thinking, too, that like sometimes in your Bible study, uh, someone's going to show up and say something that's kind of off the cuff and you have to kind of roll with that. <laughs> Francisco might be that person for me, but that's OK. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> well, okay. In in all of this, though, in this in this temptation, though, I think it's really fascinating. I guess what I really like about it, though, is that there, in, in especially in what in the way that this guy William is reading it, right? That he says that uh, that the power that that the devil has is it's stolen, right? It's imperialism, and it, it's a type of oppression that belongs to him, and it's us. To, uh, it's up to us to take it back, right? And I think that's really fascinating because it's like it's kind of like the bread example, right? Like Jesus wouldn't just like make bread out of rocks because like there's sort of a context there's a time there's a place and there's sort of like a way that that actually works in a good way and then you know to just do it kind of for himself makes him a magician or just makes him kind of like uh i don't know a weird a weird uh a weird character rather than being sort of like uh the messianic sort of son of god character that he is right Mm -hmm. and and here we have something that's sort of similar too right it's not that um that maybe like wielding power is bad um but it's that the person who's giving it to you is giving it to you um, in a context that's bad or that's giving it to you in a way that's bad or that's um, that's, you know, it's, it's stolen. It's not theirs to give or, you know, something like that. So it's like, you know, it's the recognition that like uh, just like bread is for the people, like maybe um, in this in this instance here, like political power, it doesn't come from the devil or, or not not to. It should instead you know be from the people uh, rising up to seize it from the devil or something instead. Right. So the problem isn't political power here. It's like the way that political power is being distributed and used. Yeah, for sure. I think I mean, there's a lot of other really interesting parts of this dialogue too uh so like at one point in it um marcelino does say that all power is evil and it comes from the devil uh there's other kind of ways of of parsing this out but by the time you get to cardinal he says um it's true the devil is the master of pride of haughtiness of the power of people over people this is his nature and this is what he gives to his people that's what he offers to jesus and jesus rejects it and then someone else comments saying, riches don't belong to the devil. It's the selfishness of the rich that belongs to him. 
Uh, and I like that interpretation a lot, right? It's like the source of the power, uh, the source of how worldly powers have come, that is what belongs to the devil. And I think that goes to what you were just saying, Matt, that it's like the means by which power is distributed in an oppressive way, that is what Jesus resists. And uh, that that's to say there are maybe some other means by which you could distribute power. Yeah. Okay, let's read the last one, and we'll get to the end here. So the last temptation, in, ca- in case you don't remember, in case you're not, uh, you're not following along as closely as maybe you should be, let me read it again. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down there, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you do not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to a test. When the devil had finished every last test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Okay, so here we go. Here's the last one. Um, Jesus isn't going to make bread out of rocks. He's not going to take all the political power in the world. So Satan says, why don't you throw yourself off a building and let the angels catch you? And Jesus says, no, go away. Um, Again, that's the Magnificast uh, translation. So, Dean, uh, how do we make sense of this one? Yeah, well, uh, I think, you know, you get a lot of the kind of standard responses that you'd probably expect in some of this conversation, right? That uh, the the devil is testing Jesus's ability. Is he really the Messiah? Could he really do this if he wanted to? That's one interpretation. Another is uh, the devil's trying to control Jesus to make him do something that he shouldn't do. Uh, but then there's this really interesting intervention from this guy who's called uh, a journalist named Pedro Rafael Gutierrez, who I tried to Google and couldn't find anything on earlier, but I'm sure he's out there if you speak Spanish. Uh, so this journalist who Cardinal says once had a top position on a government newspaper and who now lives with us says, I see a picture here too. The devil took Jesus up just as he sees as many of us and lifts us into certain positions. It says he seized him and he took him up. So to some, he gives riches, he gives power, he gives greatness. And once these people are powerful, then comes the temptation to screw the weak, to oppress them. And he said, no, don't tempt me. As I see it, there is a temptation of the devil, which is to raise people up, to lift us to the heights, and then let us fall. Uh, and I like that a lot, right? That uh, the devil kind of brings you up to this position, um, again, to sort of let you fall, right? To to test you, but to hope that you kind of fail it. And uh, when it comes to politics, that is also a, a very big problem, because it means that you're going to uh, ruin a lot of people's lives in the process. Yeah, Totally. This is such a okay. This is a completely um, out of left field example, but this is what it makes me think of. So Jim Jones, you might remember him as an awful cult leader who did um, participate actively in the death of a bunch of people in a cult. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, mm-hmm. Dean? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Anyways, before he was Jim Jones, the cult leader who did uh, murder a bunch of people with Kool Aid, uh, he was like a sort of progressive political activist. Like that was a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyways, but I guess like that's the kind of image that comes to mind in this particular, um, you know, of this type of like temptation that there's a person who um, who has some type of like, uh, you know, they they are well-meaning politically at, at some point. Right. And uh, they find a way to elevate themselves, to gain a platform, to become some type of like messianic figure that has something to say about the world. And then in the end, they fall deeply because um they're awful right and that i guess that's that's the picture that comes to mind uh uh the messianic figure who like betrays the movement that uh that gets people killed that actively misleads people because of their own sort of like um i don't know like 
power drunkenness or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's a it's a prevalent archetype, I think, throughout uh, media as well. Like on uh, w- that has like sort of revolutionary themes in it, right? There's always somebody that's like going to betray the revolution or, mm-hmm. or whatever. But that's what comes to mind. Uh, you know, Satan lifts you up uh, to become sort of a person uh, who means well, and then uh, you fall because. You're a yeah, and you and not only that, you fall because you expect the angels to catch you at the bottom, right? That's, that's right. The, yeah, that's the horror of somebody like Jim Jones is like you think that he probably is sort of a true believer. And that is what enables the, you know, the genocide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's good. Maybe it's good too to sort of pause and reiterate that. I think what is helpful about Christian anarchism in general, um, a little maybe not as much, but there's there's a part of this that he does retain Maybe that's why I keep reading him, despite myself. Um, There is a big moment of truth in anarchism in general that is deeply suspicious of of that, right? It's always on the lookout for where somebody is going to fall. Yeah. Um, And I think that it's important for everybody to cultivate that kind of suspicion. You know, I think to me, it's not you shouldn't have so much suspicion that you just don't think that you know, you could use something like a state forum or whatever else in order to get something done. But like, certainly you should cultivate enough suspicion so that you understand that a state isn't automatically good or, you know, you don't need to defend certain actions just because it's your team doing them or something. Right. Uh, So I think there's something to that that is right. And that is uh, a lesson from the temptations in the desert that does kind yeah. of shine through in that tradition of the left. Yeah, um, it's such a good lesson for the left. Uh, just because your team is doing it does not mean it's good. I don't know. That's not like a pointed uh, stab at anyone in particular this given moment, but I think it's something good to keep in mind. Well, at the end here, Cardinal weighs in on the whole situation, and he says this. In fact, these three temptations are a single temptation, that Jesus presents himself as the commanding and triumphant Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. And this would be a real temptation for him, and he rejected it knowing that liberation for him had to come through suffering and death. When the Jews asked him for a greater spectacular sign, he told them that uh, the only sign he would give them was that of Jonah, his death and resurrection. And this temptation not to accept his passion and death to be another kind of Messiah, he he would have it again in Gethsemane. So Cardinal kind of comes in here at, at the end to kind of tie some of these loose ends together, right? To kind of draw that these are all sort of a part of the same thing, that... Uh, that Jesus is doing something really particular and um and you know he wouldn't be tempted otherwise right that the that there's a plan <laughs> i guess at play and he was uh following it mm-hmm. yeah and i think too just it's helpful for cardinal to draw these threads into one big thing um that Jesus is also resisting a certain a certain temptation of expectations right like people have mm-hmm. these expectations of Jesus that he refuses and uh, what does that say about Jesus's particular kind of revolutionary uh, impulse or, or movement, I think is uh, an important thing for Cardinal to bring up. Um, one last bit in here that's really interesting. Uh, so I think yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I've heard a version of this also in sort of evangelical circles, but never put in this particular way. So uh, at the end of this conversation, um, Felipe Pena says, I see that the devil tempts him by saying, because the scriptures say. It's just like a lot of Catholics and Protestants use the Bible to defend their interests. They say the scriptures say such and such a thing, and it's all to exploit us. And another person adds, it's like when they say to the poor, you've got to respect the property of the rich because it comes to them from God. 
And I, I say I've heard a version of this in evangelicalism because when I was in evangelical, it would even be like uh, they would use this against like mainline Protestants. They would be like, well, people will say, you know, the scriptures say you've got to love one another. But then they, I don't know, like use that to tell you that you shouldn't be afraid of gay people or something. Right. Like these really perverse kind of <laughs> extremely ironically perverse uh, uses of this particular story. Um, but uh, it's a good point when housed in the right kind of context, right, in Solentaname, that uh, the devil is the one who turns the scriptures against God. The devil is the one who takes the scriptures in order to make them a temptation to uh, do all these things, right, um, to uh, do a bad political revolution, to <laughs> to take, uh, you know, satanic power for himself, to... Uh, become the kind of um, false or self-serving Messiah, right? All these kinds of things the devil uses the Bible to do. So I love that kind of recognition at the end that uh, you have to find a way of reading the Bible, develop a certain hermeneutic such that you can also resist those temptations. That's what Jesus does. He has like a way of understanding the Bible that is able to kind of understand that, you know, he he quotes the Bible against the Bible in that particular way. And it's a good a good lesson for those of us trying to figure out how to deal with, you know, Christian supremacism and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, here at the end of the day, uh, at the end of this Bible verse, we have some conclusions. So Jacques Ellul, he's a weird guy with a lot of hangups. There's something interesting in what he says about political power, but I think at the end of the day, it's kind of untenable. You can't really do it. And I think at the end of the day, it's just bad. <laughs> I guess maybe is a better way to put it. Um, there's something interesting, but I don't like it. Um, and and then maybe from the Gospel in Solon Taname, something we can draw out here is that the, the problem with the temptations from the devil is not necessarily the power in and of itself. It's not like, you know, it's not like Jacques Ellul thinks that uh, wielding power, power in general is bad. But rather it's like, you know, where's the power coming from? What is the end of the power like? You know, those are the questions that we should be asking. What's the context, you know, <laughs> given behind those things? Who is giving it? Who is active in giving it? Who is receiving it? These are all questions you should be asking about power, um, just like Jesus is doing here, <laughs> rather than just saying it's outright bad. Yeah, I think, too, there is a big conversation to be had around the temptations of power, and maybe that's a topic for another episode. But yeah. um, what I always think about is actually a passage from Paulo Ferreira's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, um, it's another great book from Latin America. Uh, it's a pretty famous text, but it's really a it's a theory of education, but it's also a theory of, of revolution. And in it, Freire, his big thing is dialogue. He's all about a true revolutionary movement and leader is all about dialogue. And the key is to resist um, sort of turning that dialogue into a monologue or refusing to let the people speak for themselves or the oppressed speak for themselves. So there's a passage in there where uh, Frere says this. Since the leaders need the adherence of the people so that the revolution can be achieved, they are tempted to utilize the same procedures used by the dominant elites to oppress. Rationalizing their lack of confidence in the people, the leaders say that it's impossible to dialogue with the people before taking power, thus opting for the anti-dialogical theory of action. Hmm. Thenceforward, just like the dominant elites, they try to conquer the people. They become messianic. They use manipulation and carry out cultural invasion. By advancing along these paths, the paths of oppression, they will not achieve revolution. Or if they do, it will not be authentic revolution. And I like that because Freire is doing a sort of intra-left critique, right? Like the people he has in mind are left-wing revolutionary leaders, or would-be leaders at least. 
And I think it's it's worth sort of understanding this as a lesson for us as well, right? That like for all of us who want a different world, who are want to be part of creating a better world, all that kind of stuff, it is important to see that as like a profoundly tempting thing. I think, you know, temptation shouldn't stop you from action. I think that's the problem that Alul gets into. It's like the yeah. temptation is real and massive. Um, but nevertheless, you know, you have to kind of have the courage to do something and do it knowing that you're going to have a temptation. And maybe that's why, maybe this is just because I've been fasting <laughs> for a day. But <laughs> I think, like, there's such an important lesson, too, in being able to live alongside the temptation and to notice it and recognize it and say no to it. Like, there's something, if you're if you're never put in the position where you have the temptation, then you also never really know what to do with it. <laughs> you never know how to get out of it or beyond it. So there's something about that in the left too, that maybe this is a good lesson for Lent that we should well, try to identify those temptations. Yeah. You know, last week on the show, I mentioned, I was reading a little bit about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his like organizing strategy. And that this reminds me of um, in, uh, in a speech he gave called where'd we go from here. Um, there's, this line that he delivers that I think is is pretty helpful, actually, around this point. He says this, There's only one dignified, sincere, and effective method of working with the poor. You can't work over them. You can't work around them. You can't work for them. You have to work with them. And I think that is actually kind of a helpful idea around, um, uh, like, political power and, like, and the way that you have to comport yourself when you do pick it up, right? That, that uh and maybe also why you have to be like really suspicious of like politicians at the end of the day, because politicians are not organizers. Politicians are not people, you know, I mean, they could be a part of a mass movement, but they're unless they're beholden to it, it could be kind of complicated. If you're going to pick up political power, if you're going to do like organizing work, if you're going to kind of like wade into those territories where you you build power to wield it, I think that's kind of a, a hopeful way of thinking about it, right? You're not, uh, you have to be with the people that you're working for. You have to be kind of like conspirators with them rather than, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, people who are just like an advocate for them or something. Yeah, absolutely. And also recognizing too that even beyond politicians, it's like anybody who's ever spent time in an organizing space knows that these kind of things crap up all the time in micro versions in yeah totally in organizing <laughs> meetings right like i don't know and and you notice them in yourself like uh when you uh, well when i i'll speak in the first person when, <laughs> when i when i have you know an impulse to like control a conversation or be like i really don't think that's what we should do i i know for sure we should do this other thing you know and like <laughs> you end up sounding like a huge asshole because you're like not not creating space for people to talk because you just want to get your two cents in right all these temptations that just come up when you're trying to to work with others especially others who may or may not share your perspective or your particular idea but you need them to get something done and, and they need you to get something done like it's important to be able to uh I guess, you know, have that lesson in humility and, and resist the temptation so that you can just be a good comrade to other people. That's cool. I'm glad that you brought that to the podcast because I've never experienced that before. That's uh, <laughs> really neat for me to hear about. Yeah, yeah, of course. Matt only ever experiences me trying to be controlling on the other end of the podcast. <laughs> no, never. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, we got a lot of good, uh, a lot of good instruction on power here. Maybe uh, uh, some good ideas about how to be suspicious of it and maybe some other good ideas about uh, how to be mindful of it <laughs> or i don't know to use it uh dean what's the big takeaway from this conversation the big takeaway is you shouldn't eat rocks and uh the angels are not going to catch you so don't even try there you go 
you heard it here, folks. Don't listen to the devil. Uh, you are the devil, and the devil is bad. Hey, um, this has been <laughs> the Magnificast. Thanks for listening in. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Our intro music is by Mario Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. We'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would else, 